Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, this is Steve. Hollywood will do just about anything for your attention. Massive CGI effects, insane action, incredible spectacle, not to mention songs from the world's most popular bands, fantastic costumes, huge sets, and breathtaking locations. The studios will literally spend millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars to keep you entertained. And when they succeed, it is absolutely jaw-dropping. But sometimes, the most expensive special effects pale in comparison to what a great actor can do with a simple look, a gesture, or just plain silence. The cast of Mississippi Burning delivers unforgettable performances, led by the incomparable Gene Hackman, whose intensity is only matched by his subtlety and nuance. Willem Dafoe is brilliant playing against type as the by-the-book Agent Ward, and Frances McDormand demonstrates in this early performance the skills which will make her one of the great actors of this or any other age. And they, in turn, are backed up by incredible performances from Brad Dourif, Michael Rooker, and Stephen Tobolowsky. This is not only a great film but a challenging one as well, and the conversation we had with screenwriter David McKenna was absolutely fascinating. So, if you haven't seen Mississippi Burning, you should head straight to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream every single film we've ever reviewed. 
And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss everyone's favorite secret agent, James Bond, his history, the actors who played him, and what we might want to see in future versions of 007. And just a reminder, since it's now 2021, there is a whole new year of movies eligible for the cinephile treatment. And if you want to help us pick which 2011 film we tackle first, you need to make your voice heard on our annual listener survey, which you can find at www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5. Don't worry, you can find a link in the show notes. So, that's a cinephile short on James Bond on Patreon, our annual listener survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5, and Mississippi Burning Part 2 with special guest David McKenna this Friday on The Cinephiles. We're not killers. That's the difference between them and us. That's the difference between them and you. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of Mississippi Burning. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. What's up, everyone? My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on The Outlaw Nation uh, and uh, a big uh, a, a big fan of the movie again. We're coming back for part two of this <laughs> and an even bigger fan of David McKenna, our guest. I mean... This guy's awesome. So I'm, I'm very excited to be sit, sitting back down again with him and with Steve to talk about this movie. Well, and if you listen to part one, you know that Dave McKenna is the writer of American History X, Blow and SWAT, was the creator and executive producer of E-Ring on NBC, and right now has the film Embattled, starring Stephen Dorff. It's playing on all the big uh, streaming media, including Apple TV and Amazon. Uh, and uh, David, welcome back to The Cinephiles. Steve and John, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. I, You know, it's such a sign of us going into a two-part episode because we had basically such an incredible time talking with you on part one we just didn't want to stop yeah um, true but i like um, that he's not lifting weights this time you know he's a, he's, a, he's a very manly dude uh so i like that he's put down the weights this time and he's really focused on doing it for see for episode two so i'm ready for it <laughs> so where we left off gene hackman had just come into intimate and violent contact <laughs> with michael rooker's uh, private parts hey, <laughs> the thing that just occurred to me is that rooker's arrogance in the moments before he gets his balls grabbed is really the same as the arrogance. Remember we were talking about that white driver of the car at the very beginning oh, yeah. of the movie yeah. who felt that he was, you know, surrounded right. by some mystical protection. <laughs> yeah. And that's what Rooker thing. He literally is telling an FBI guy, he's threatening an FBI guy because he feels so safe in his yeah. world, you yeah. know? Yeah. Great point. And now we go straight from that really intense and amazing scene right into some actual documentary footage of the Ku Klux Klan. And, and Parker thought about recreating this. He thought about filming his own documentary, but then he watched this and he went, oh, I can't. You know, the system is, they want to throw white children and colored children into the melting pot of integration, out of which will come a conglomerated, blatter, mongrel class of people. That footage is incredible. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. 
but now William Defoe has heard about this and he is not pleased. He says, do you have any idea how much trouble you've caused? They've been on the radio all day. Everyone from Townley to the governor talking about FBI intimidation. We're not thugs, Mr. Anderson. We're going to do this thing my way. I know, bureau procedure. And what the hell were you doing at the beauty parlor? And Hackman is pissed. You know what your problem is? You know when to speak and when to shut up. That makes you a fool. <laughs> angry angry Hackman's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Mrs. Pell ain't going to say anything to me. Her husband doesn't want her to say. And I'm not going to choke it out of her. And that's when Defoe says, This can of worms only opens from the inside. He's going against yeah. his old advice. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's going against... What he did in the beginning with sitting down yep. in the middle of the diner in front of the in front of the black kid. And now we cut to a, a march, a, like a, a a protest. People calling horrible names of the people that are marching, and we even see a deputy taking American flags out of the hands of the marchers. Yeah, man. Which is something Parker said he saw in one of the films of the actual time. Oh wow! Yeah. Um. Huh. Yep. I think um, Spielberg. I think Spielberg stole some of this stuff for when the Jews are going off in. Um, in, in Schindler's. Uh, yes. Mm. Oh. There's a lot of similars. There's the girl saying, "Go home, Jews. Go home." Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. There's also a nice little moment where Gene Hackman kind of pushes down the nightstick of one of the cops. Love that part. <laughs> I love that moment. I love that. Also, yeah. Gene Hackman's idea. Um, yeah. <laughs> Did, um, he, did he say that it was his idea? Is it written there? Alan, Alan Parker says it was his idea. Wow. Yeah. And now Gene Hackman goes into the beauty parlor. And I love the women that are going like, why did you ask me questions? Why does anyone <laughs> ask me questions? That's the great park overall. Yeah. She's awesome. Um, oh, is that who that is? Yeah, yeah. The girl from like Empty Nest. Uh -huh. That's her. That's park overall. Yeah, um, she's great. Uh, and then they're talking and we see them looking out through the window, but we do not hear what they're saying. It's another great, great Genius. choice. Yes, great yeah. choice. We're at some kind of stakeout, and we see an African-American guy go outside of the sheriff's office, and he starts to walk away. We see a truck turn its light on and starts to follow them. It peels out following them. Come on, let's go. Wait, we'll wait until they go back inside. They're chasing after the, this kid, and Hackman is going, Come on, let's go. Come on. Wait until they go back inside. Come on. So what's so interesting about this moment is William Defoe, his character is cold and Hackman's character is hot because what William Defoe is doing is he knows that this kid could get killed, but he is not going to go until he gets the evidence. He gets it set up the way he needs it to be set up. That's that's some cold shit. And they finally do go inside and they take off and we follow into the woods and they it's beautifully shot, mostly lit by the car's headlights as we're sort of in a POV shot from behind the uh, our characters as they drive. There's the truck. Yeah. Go up that little road there. And then they see this young African-American. They stop the car and he is beaten and his pants mm. are pulled down, which is very upsetting. And the, the way that Willem Dafoe as he cradles him, tries to pull up his pants to sort of yeah. give him some cover, you know, to take away some of his shame is just, it's so pa painful a moment. And he says, what's wrong with these people? That moment's from the trailer. You know, I remember that oh. moment from the trailer distinctly. And it's just the, it's a great shot, the way it's framed, the lighting of it all, him looking up, you know, all of that, it almost desperation, like, 
what's wrong with these people? Because, right, he's still thinking that these people are operating within a certain uh, idea of right and wrong. But these people have no concept of that. They think what they're doing is right, even though it's so clearly wrong. And so that's he asked that question of Hackman because he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it in this moment. How how much farther they're willing to go uh, to maintain this way of life. In but he's town. getting to it, John. He's getting to Yeah, it. he's getting to it. Yes, yes. It's a journey, right? Like you said earlier, yeah. I know it doesn't, this doesn't make any sense at all, but I keep going back to the opening image of the film and the two drinking fountains. Mm. And it's like, if you can accept the two drinking fountains, what in fact you are accepting is the lack of humanity of the people that drink out of the lesser fountain. And once mm-hmm. you accept that, then you're willing to accept all these other things. They all seem okay, you know? Yeah. Be, and particularly because you need to defend your position. You need to defend the status quo in which you have a superior uh, position in the world. Yeah. And and that is, is that the mayor says earlier, you know, we got these two cultures. We have the white culture and the colored culture, and that's the way it's been, and that's the way it should be, and that's the way it's always going to be, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, there's a big difference, though, Steve, between drinking fountains and lynchings and murder. And- oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course. Of course. 100%. But it always starts small and then leads to everything else. That's yeah. the thing. It yeah. always starts just the separation. Yeah. The quick, do you, right? The way the the way it happened in Nazi Germany, it wasn't like round them all up and kill them now. It right. was the slow dehumanizing, and then it's okay to start putting uh, these unfortunate souls in trains and doing what you did in in the concentration camps. So yeah. you see that, and same thing here. This water, the mountain is where it starts, and then it progresses from there. And so after this really intense and powerful scene uh we're back with defoe and hackman and now they're talking to i think the this guy's family Mm -hmm. and desperately trying to get them to go on the record get this guy to testify and again watch gene hackman and the camera stays on him a long time because he already knows that this is not going to work he won't talk to no one and it won't do no good anyway i promise you it will leave him alone Maybe then they'll let us alone. Is that the presence of the FBI is making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what he's been saying from the beginning, right? Would it matter to you if I told you this wasn't a good idea? No, it wouldn't. And he just he just b- keeps barreling through doing this. So, And that's where the controversy kind of started with mm-hmm. uh, um, the African-American filmmakers and Spike Lee. Is mm-hmm. it just it showed that that one part right there shows the passivity um, of and the not fighting back aspect of um, the African-American community. And that it was parts like this where they had problems, Steve, you know what I'm talking about? Um, The black community. Well, I think, uh, and David, you know, I'm I'm sure you've experienced this too, is anything that when you're writing a screenplay, a choice that you make affects all the other choices. And so if the goal is to show the blundering ham fisted nature of, you know, the white FBI approach to the African-American community, you must show that approach fail and their way of showing that approach fail. And to like, bring up this real mistake that these guys are making is to have the African-Americans in the film, not responsive to them. But then that in and of itself creates where the controversy comes from. Mm. You know, because now you've made them more passive. Yeah, And, and, you know, and this is like, 
you know, David, I'm sure you know, this is why screenwriting is such a much harder art than anyone really understands because you're yeah. juggling all these uh, tensions, you know. Especially nowadays, you didn't back in 1987 when this was in production, but nowadays, yes. And this goes to, if you think of the job of an artist is to honestly express themselves and who they are and what they feel and get to their true emotion and that is hard enough that's mm -hmm. a tough enough job mm -hmm. but then to do it and then to go through that again and rethink wait 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 how is this going to be perceived by this group by this group by this group by this group it's hard yeah yeah i agree um I agree. but needless to say they get nowhere with this uh family and we're back with hackman and defoe and I, the end of the scene is so interesting now deputy pal went with him that night i'm sure of it you think he'll crack down here, they say rattlesnakes don't commit suicide. I mean, just one of many brilliant lines, you know, in there. Um, it's just a fantastic line. And so now we're going to interrogate Brad Jarif again, and they are asking him the same questions. And basically, they're getting as far with him as they were in the previous scene, you know, <laughs> which is to say nowhere. Were you, in fact, the grand cyclops of the East Mississippi Clavern of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan for the past three years? Objection. My client's already told you. He's not even a member of the clan. Objection. This is just an interview, sir. But that creates the opening for Brad Dariq to go, well, if this is just an interview, then I don't have to stay. And Brad Dariq storms out right into a crowd of reporters. And there's the sheriff who's talking to the reporters about how they've been harassed. And you even got Michael Rooker taking a swing at one of the reporters, mm -hmm. which uh, is in the film because Alan Parker saw that in some of the documentary footage of the time. Yeah. What I think this shows so well is just how what the FBI has done in this town has made this a show. Once again, we go back to the Brad Dorif character and um, just the fl the flippancy and just the casual nature that they treated with the FBI and the confidence. It's just it's awesome. And then Rooker is just such an animal out there. And uh, that's one that's one example of life imitating art once again or art imitating life, whatever yeah. way you have it. But I mean, to steal that is beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know what it just occurred to me, and there's a lot of these parallels, um, and I don't know quite how hard we're going to hit them, but what's happening in this moment is that the federal government, the establishment is the enemy for this uh, community, and the media is the enemy. The media is linked to the FBI as being part of the enemy. Mm. Um, I don't know anywhere else. Always where the see media. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always the media. <laughs> Mr. Ward, this is getting to be just about as much as we can take. I cannot register my complaints more strongly. Not now, sir. I resent your public pursuit of my sheriff's department. But your goddamn slimy innuendos are not evidence that they were in any way connected with any crime. <laughs> He's so great. <laughs> just love watching him. The finger pointing is what he does so well. Yeah. I really wanted to just hear him say, and if God had wanted you over that obstacle, he would have miracled your ass there by right now. <laughs> you know what, Anderson? You're starting to get so far up my nose, I'm beginning to feel your boots on my chin. <laughs> I'm telling you, Tillman, there are three dead kids out there somewhere and a lot of scared people because you're goddamn sheriff's department, so you better get used to having us around. You better get used to my boots on your chin, too. <laughs> And I love after they exit that Defoe turns to Hackman and says, For a moment there, Mr. Anderson, sounded like we were both on the same side. 
<laughs> well, you knew that line was coming. <laughs> well, and it's just, it's that slow, because it, it's really fun, because this is a buddy cop movie, and a buddy cop movie, the structure is we hate each other at the beginning, and then eventually we become a team. Yeah. I think this movie has the latest coming together. You know, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, they're together by the end of act one. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. this has the late, and I think even at the end of the film, it's still, these guys are not best buddies at the mm -hmm. end of the movie. You know, it's still tentative. We all have to work with people. We don't necessarily connect with or see eye to eye with because, but the overall goal is what's important. So you put that aside, eventually these guys, because they're both alphas in different ways, right? Yeah. Like Hackman yeah. is more of an overt alpha, but uh, Defoe is one of those subtle nerdy alphas. That's like, you know, it's like a, just a, it's like a Andy Dufresne just carving out that hole in the prison, you know, it, it yeah, it's going to take some years, but he's determined to do it and no one can talk him out of it, you know, whereas yeah. Hackman would have punched holes in the prison to get out, you know, just the difference. Frances McDormand pulls up. This is a very small scene. Hmm. She's unloading her groceries and a neighbor asks if she's all right. I don't think there are any scenes in this movie without a reason. And I'm curious what you think this scene is about. The neighbor says, are you all right? And she goes inside. That is really interesting that you brought that up because I totally missed that. Um, you know, what do you think, John? Let me think about that for a well, second. I would imagine they know who her husband is. Her husband's being interrogated by the FBI more than once. It's a small town. People talk. Yeah. So I'm sure they're checking in on her, but also there may be a little more of an element of checking in to make sure she's on the right side by asking that question. Because remember you saw her earlier being really friendly with uh, the black woman who's doing her dry cleaning. So clearly right. they know she has a very, you know, at least, an, at least from that scene, you can uh, extrapolate that she's a very strong connection with the black community there. That isn't like her husband's connection with the black community there, you know, and that, and that's the truth about, a lot of these Southern states, and a lot of this time during the sixties, not everyone was like, kill black people, fuck black people. It was very, it was a lot like nowadays it's a loud minority that's pushing these certain agendas and they happen to have people in power who are enforcing or pushing those agendas as well. So the, so the, the noise of it seems louder than it actually is. There were a lot of people from this time who are in these towns who actually didn't want to, you know, be as, violent or racist towards people of color uh, who were there. So, it was, but you know, these are the people that we're dealing with here in this movie. I don't even think I want to add on to that. I think that's brilliant. You know? <laughs> I mean, because you don't know the question is so innocuous. Mm. It, it could almost be a veiled threat of sorts. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Are you on the right side here? Yeah. Steve, what's your <laughs> thoughts, Steve, since you asked the question. So, what's your so when I, when I first watched the film, it was just that, Oh, Gene Hackman's washing her and she's coming home. Hmm. And then when I watched the commentary track and I was kind of looking at the scene, like, why is this here? Right after she goes inside, she leans against the door for a moment. Mm -hmm. And I do think this is a threat. I think it's a subtle yeah. threat. And I think that I, I think, you know, cause she said it's a small town and yep. everybody knows each other. There's not secrets here. Yep. And so I think people, a, they know that her politics are not exactly the same mm -hmm. because she clearly, and we're going to see in scenes later, she is, rebelling to some degree against what the standard view of African-Americans is in the community. Mm -hmm. I also think that people know her marriage isn't that great. 
Yeah. Yeah. True. You know what I mean? And so, so her neighbor saying, are you all right? Is saying, I do think it's a threat. I think it's saying you, you better stick with us. You're part of our community. Yeah. Don't side with these other people. Plus who has she publicly been talking to? Right. She's been talking to Gene Hackman. Yeah. You know, how many of those women in the hair salon have been talking to her talking to Gene? Yeah. Yep. And now we have another, what I can only describe as, and should be described as terrorist attacks, Yeah, you know, violence used to create fear in a community. And it is a smoking box that gets put on the kid's house, you know, in front of a kid's house and, you know, they blow up another house. Do you, he, there are so many of these in the movie, uh, uh, Stephen David, do you think Alan Parker put, cause remember in this movie uh, it's an hour and 40 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes before we finally get that break in the case. And then the movie careens to a satisfying ending to what happens to these people. But there is constant um, these constant explosions and attacks. Do you think Alan does this throughout the movie on purpose to constantly keep you from feeling comfortable? Like as soon as you're starting to be in a certain place where you might get a little bit of rhythm or comfort up what's happening. Boom. Here's another explosion. Never forget the threat is always there and real and can happen at any moment. Cause I mean, there are so many of these uh, occurrences throughout the movie. It's relentless. Mm. And maybe that's kind of how it was at the time. I mean, I, yeah. I think that yeah. what you're con- what they're conveying is, is, Hey, you know, this is, you're never safe. Uh, don't ever get comfortable. What Steve, who was the, what house was this again? I don't exactly remember what. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And I don't think they make it quite clear in the movie, but my, mm-hmm. my feeling is, I, I don't know, but it's possible. It's the same house of the family of the guy that got beat up that Defoe cradled in his arms that they were later trying to get to testify. Oh, yeah. That seems the most logical. Okay. okay. But I don't think they make it crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Um, just to comment, because I was thinking, John, about what you were just asking is, yeah. you know, this movie is a, it's an issue political film masquerading as a thriller detective story. Yes, of course. Yeah. Because there isn't really any, we know who the bad guys are. It, you know, I just mentioned Lethal Weapon, but it's like, it's not, they're not trying to find the bad guys or figure out what's going on. Right. We know what's going on. It's all about them blundering into this world and the consequences and, and us through them seeing the level of fear and oppression that exists within this world. The difference between this and like a whodunit mm. is there's not really a, a, a major villain in a whodunit. Right. Until, right. until the very end when, when you find out what happens, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a difference here with, on these type of movies, which is really interesting because we know who the villains are. We know who the cops are and the rest is, you know, process. And that's yeah. what we love is we love watching process. We love yeah. watching how these guys put clues together on how mm-hmm. they're going to bust these guys. Yeah. You and, know, and, and interrogate and try to break them. But right. Law and order yeah. criminal intent is this way. Like, it starts out with the villain. You know who the person is that committed the crime right from the beginning. But the journey is backwards. It's supposed to law and order is forwards trying to figure out who did it in right. criminal intent. You know immediately. So you're going backwards through the show as they try to find the person who has the evidence to finally convict the person or the, the confession, get that confession to finally convict the person who is actually guilty. So in this way, yeah. too, they're, they're pounding on all the doors, interrogating all these people, because they want to get that final confession or that final piece of evidence that convicts all these people. And in the real case, it took them three years 
to and of course i know this is based off the real case it's not the actual real case but like in the real case it took them three years before they finally found an informant who would be willing to give them the information and thirty thousand dollars that they paid this guy from the government to eventually uh give up the people involved in the killings of those three kids uh, i'm just still thinking about this and and, and the what's so interesting is that everything you just say about the structure of the whodunit and the mm-hmm. law and order versus, you know, that's all true. Yeah. And yet this is trying to do this other thing. And that's mm-hmm. the interesting things about film is that carrying you along, you have to have the narrative that's bringing you forward. Right. Right. But what it's also doing at the same time is trying to do something else, which is to create a feeling and create a, a, a sense of a, of an issue. And it's funny, yeah. I was, David and I were talking just uh, before we started recording, I mentioned mm-hmm. this great white shark film that I'd done both for Hoover and I, uh, my partner on it, we weren't trying to say something about great white sharks as much as we were trying to say something about humans and about mm-hmm. fear. That was really the theme of the film was why are we afraid? Mm-hmm. And what and so the story was really about humans. And in, in one of the interviews I did with Hoover that never actually made it into the film, but he, I remember he said, um, "The shark is the bait, yeah, to get us to talk about something else." Yeah. Is that the detective story in this case is the bait? There will be no movie without a detective story, right? But that allows you to talk about something else. Seeing all these white guys chasing around in these dog trots with their little notebooks gonna get you nowhere okay what would you do so the first moment that he actually looks to gene hackman and says all right and who do they get they get this kid that we've seen before the kid that was preaching the kid that was kicked while he was praying uh aaron and he is talking to another young african-american and says tell him what you saw go on willie tell him what you saw Cut to an amazingly powerful shot. We're in a car, and that kid has a cardboard box on his head with uh, holes cut out for the eyes. Jesus Christ, yeah. What What do you think that shot is? What's it saying to us? How does it make you feel? It's one of the greatest shots I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, and just from the turns, um, you know, there's they're going through the street, and there's no lanes. You know, where are they driving? You know, it's just like, and they've got uh, Parker set up the camera ahead, and you've yeah. got that score. And it's, um, it's just incredible. It is, it is one of the most powerful shots in the entire movie, and um, it's so original. Um, you know, him and the DP, uh, who, what's the DP's name? Peter, uh, Bijou, right? Bijou, yeah. I mean, they must, I mean, it, it, to me, it's just genius mm-hmm. and it's why, uh, it's why directors get paid the big bucks and it's why, you know, just the creativity. I mean, you could do this as a normal, you know, uh it was obviously well thought out i mean what do you think john i mean it was so well planned yeah absolutely and the 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 vibe it's meant to um give off is one of absolute terror and danger it's haunting you right and to put you in because it's no longer like you know where you see in the hoods or whatever a cardboard box like that it makes you even more like you know like um like in the nfl right those when the saints were terrible they'd wear those paper bags and put holes in them (laughs) Right. And that was to showcase that we're all the same in the shame that we feel supporting this team. 
And in the same way that this is where a hood can decorate you and make it very clear that you're a you know KKK person or an executioner, even if you you know if you use a black hood with the holes cut out, a cardboard box eliminates your individuality and makes you non-distinct. So therefore, you're even more subhuman. It's a subconscious thing where you look at someone like that and they're even more subhuman because you can't see their face or even make out their face through the hood. That's a problem I have with this being one of my favorite movies is I've seen it so mm. many times that I take that moment for granted. <laughs> and, and, and now I, you know, as a writer and maybe a director someday, I'm looking at that shot and I'm just going, you know, it's just, it's fabulous with the music. It yeah. really is. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Yeah. So, so, and I also think it's interesting. It's like, what have we been looking at as our bad guys? What's the symbol of our bad guys? Mm -hmm. Guys in hoods with holes for eyes. You yes, know? good point. So, so, so I think we're, but I also think, and this is, this is what's so interesting about film. Cause I think the moment is amazing. I think it's extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think if your perception watching this movie is that you're getting angrier and angrier about the passivity of the African-Americans. And then you take who is arguably among the most heroic African-American characters in this film. Yeah. He has zero lines. Yeah. And the most powerful shot of him is essentially him, his face covered and him unspeaking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so how, so, well, you know, we could look at this shot and go, oh my God, this is so powerful. But this shot also could make you really, really pissed off, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and part of it is it's power. That's what its power is doing. You know, it's powerful regardless, but it might, but de depending on your perspective, mm -hmm. you have a very different reaction. Yeah. yeah. So we're in court. It's happened. We've brought guys to trial. I think everything's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> this scene, this judge, they, they pronounce them guilty. The guys stand up. Immediately, the judge immediately says the court understands the crimes oh. they committed were brought about by outside influences. Oh, God. Outsiders have come into Jessup County, and they've been people of low morality and unhygienic. And their presence here has provoked a lot of people. And as we see this, yes, we see the reactions of Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, but even more powerfully is the segregated balcony with a, yeah. the faces of silent, silent again, African-Americans watching yeah. this. Yeah. I want to bring something up to you guys, and I want to see what we think about it as I was watching it this time, because that scene echoes to kill a mockingbird it is the reverse mm. of to kill a mockingbird where yeah. they stand up stand up your, your daddy's passing that's out of respect for what he was able to do in that court and what the judgment was at the end right well no no because that he loses the case i know he does but the yeah. nobility of how he does it right yeah. there's a respect whereas this shot is almost similar where you're looking up into the gallery and there's that sense of um helplessness and desperation there and and it just kind of i i just found myself and wondering if alan parker did that as kind of an homage to kill a mockingbird as a reverse thing where it shows you i think uh, it's a great point you know, i never thought I about love, it. i think you're totally right i love the expression on the the black woman's face yeah. you know he keeps on going the one on the balcony and yeah. you know what her expression says to me is it's it's, it's expected there's no surprise there's here no surprise nothing, here. nothing yeah. to see here Great point. And, yeah. uh, and so I, I thought that was a pretty powerful, strong moment, hmm. uh, especially for that woman. I know there are people that listen to our show that always 
get upset when we get into politics and I understand that. And, and believe it or not, John and I try to avoid it on sh- shows that uh, on films that it doesn't matter, but this film is not one of those. It's very this clear. film is about something and watching uh, white men get off on the uh, attack of an African-American and seeing them watch the miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And we have to go to how many times have people in the African-American community seen that the justice system does not work for them? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how, how many times have they watched, have they said those guys aren't going to get convicted? There's yeah. going to be extenuating circumstance. They're going to throw out the, the case. The, the, the justice system is going to rally around their own kind. And you can say that this particular case, that that made sense or whatever, mm-hmm. but you can't say that this hasn't happened over and over and over again to the point that it is the expectation of this community that justice will be miscarried. It's, it's also furthering the point that the... Um, normal uh, pillars of justice in that community are hopelessly biased towards uh, African-Americans or blacks in the South, right? The police are against them. The courts are against them. So all the normal avenues that most Americans have been told or all Americans have been told are their avenues for um, justice uh, are being uh, biased towards them. So what options do they have? What a helpless existence that is on a daily basis. And what's the next moment? And again, because of things we've been through recently in this country, this had much greater resonance, which is the next moment is a riot. Yeah. So you've shown that the system doesn't care about you. You've shown it's become hopeless and people get angry. Yeah. And when have we seen that? You know, how many times have we seen that justice deferred violence follows? Look at those flames, Mr. Ward. That's why they sent you down here, wasn't it? It would have happened anyway, and you know it. And then this moment, again, we, we talked about great moments in the film. Here comes another one. You know, if I was a Negro, I'd probably think the same way they do. If you were a Negro, nobody would give a damn what you thought. Yeah. I, I mentioned in the first broadcast, uh, there's 10 of these scenes, or there's 11 of these scenes, where they each outdo one another, mm-hmm. where it's mano a mano, and who could get the... the the greatest line in at the end to shut the other one up, you know, and this is, this is them once again, I think Ward wins most of these ones. And what do you think, John? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He does. He does. Uh, Because I mean, yeah, because uh, uh, he's more, I don't know if I could say this correctly, but I feel like he's more intelligent than Hackman uh, uh, on on levels. Yeah. Yeah, Different kind of intelligence. Whereas Hackman is more of a, a folksy intelligent, this is more of an overall perspective. And because I remember Hackman is the one that's joking about the KKK zone. Joking. To him, it's like just a standard way of life. And yes, they're doing the right thing, but to him, it's it's not as serious until it gets serious. It isn't until the beating of Francis McDormand that he finally shows the fuck up, you know, like fully right. and understands because right. now he has skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah. And it's someone, and it's ironically not a black person. Ironically, so it's, it's like, interesting. It's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting because Ward has already come to him. There, there was a, there's a big delay here. Ward came to him and said, "Hey, what would you do? I'm willing to do what you say." Yeah, right. but there's this lull that happens right yeah. during this period with the trial and the riots yep. and all this stuff until 
Gene Hackman really starts to really implement his plan. Yep. Well, and I think I, I think the way Ward is coming at this is his, and it comes out in the scene, mm-hmm. is he says this would have happened anyway. Because mm-hmm. what he's decided is that the situation is so terrible and it has gone on forever and will continue yeah. to go on forever that whatever you know, consequences there are to his actions are worth it. Even if, because he's, again, it goes back to something I said in the last episode, he's cold. Yes. Hackman is hot. Yeah. You know, Hackman goes with emotion. Whereas Ward is like, if people get hurt, people are going to get hurt. People are going to get hurt anyway, you know? And he's willing to have not only himself get killed, but he's willing to have other people get killed in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Yeah. Um, we've seen a lot of difficult scenes. We've seen scenes from the very opening scene, which is so brutal, and multiple other scenes of attacks and burnings and beatings. And now we have the worst one. It's nighttime. Uh, we're at the house of Aaron, the kid that we've met many times. And here comes another fire, and the family gets up. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. Take your mama, your grandmama, and the children out the back door. You hear? When you hit the road, keep going. You understand? Keep going, son. And he gets his shoes on and grabs a gun and he's done. Who's there? If you're in there, come on out. You hear? I ain't taking this shit no more. And then he turns around for a moment and gets hit on the back from behind. Dragged through the mud. And this is the lynching. The news comes out. Alan Parker said something really interesting, which is as a filmmaker and a director, he arranged for this scene. He cast it. He found the location. He knew when they were going to shoot it, how they were going to approach it. And that's all clinical. His job as a professional is to shoot this scene. He says when he showed up to shoot it, he felt sick to his stomach. Of course. Like he's never had a visceral reaction to being in the middle of this moment as he did trying to direct this scene. Have you, has, have you ever experienced that on any of your show? I mean, cause uh, American history X David, yeah. there's some really strong moments. I mean, the curve stomping alone is just insane, but there is some really violent rhetoric or, and uh, d- d- you know, truly unsettling moments that happened throughout that movie. Were you on set for any of those that kind of like made you feel the same way Alan Parker speaks about this scene? Yeah, I was on the set the whole time. Um, wow. uh, it, you know, I, I was young. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was necessarily mature enough to understand the ramifications of some of those scenes like I am today. Right. When I watched this scene where I watched them literally put him in the noose and yeah. hang him, mm. um, I almost cried. And um, it was yeah. really visceral for me and um, very emotional. Um, nothing like American American History X was just a guy kind of on a tirade out of control. This mm-hmm. was more of a, um, you know, a huge just statement on the historical treatment of yeah. black people going back hundreds of years, Great and point. we yeah. finally and and we finally get to see it for the first time because most of us have never seen it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. think, have you ever seen it on the film before? Uh, just in documentaries. 
Uh, yeah. You know, you've seen and, and the pictures, I mean, so and something Steve and I covered, right? The Civil War, you saw how some of those whippings and the contraptions they right. came up with to dehumanize yeah. the slaves, that leaves you with such a powerful, most powerful reaction. But this, the actual showing of a lynching, and I don't know if there was one in Roots. It's been a long time since I've seen Roots, but I imagine there was stuff like that in Roots as well. Certainly uh, violence. I don't remember a lynching, yeah. but I, I there could have been. Yeah, but this this moment certainly bears so much weight when you're watching it, and just breaks your heart. And I'm not surprised that it elicited a, a you know, a, a tears possibly when you were watching it because he yeah. is so he is trying to take a stand once and for all. And maybe this is what Alan is building up to, as I mentioned earlier. All these explosions, all these bombings, all these burnings, right? And finally. Someone says enough is enough. And to all the, you know, and I don't know, I don't know what the black filmmakers and Spike, I totally respect their points of view on this, but the way the film is constructed is to lead to this moment that even if they stood up to try to help, this is the stuff that they would uh, encounter. This is what they had to endure. This is what would be the result, right? He's hit from the, from behind because they're cowards. So they hit him from behind and then they immediately string him up and it's no, like, it's no big deal. There's no like struggle, they understand exactly what to do because they've doing they've done this many many times, and you see it, and just the helplessness you feel as a viewer. It's very reminiscent to the accused when you're seeing Jodie Foster getting raped. You are mm-hmm. so helpless in that yeah. moment watching it. I'll never forget that scene and my feelings in the theater. Same thing here. I remember in the theater just gripping my armchair out of rage because you can't do anything, and you're set up to watch. And this man. Who you know? Who was so proud seeing him reduced to just a, another statistic, getting lynched, his humanity erased from him by these racist idiots? It just like it drives you insane, and it's even more heartbreaking when his son runs back, unhooks him, and he's still somewhat alive. And that's when I started to cry when he's holding him and he's saying, yeah. "It's okay, Papa. Don't leave me, Papa. It's just a, you're just hurt on the head. You're just, like, trying to you know talk him back to life." And it's just like, man. And he's still alive, but you don't ever know for how long. But just that moment is so heartbreaking, man. So I read a few years ago, I read uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which mm. is the mm. book about the Native American experience. And it's one of those books, uh, maybe I've mentioned it before on the show, but where going into it, I knew it was going to be bad. Mm. And because I knew some of the history and it's it's so much worse, mm. so far beyond what you can imagine how terrible it is what happened to Native Americans in this country. And the reason I bring it up is there is a pattern that was really clear in the book, which was they'd make a deal with the American government. American government would break the deal. Yeah. Uh, they would get, the young men would get angry and they said, we have to fight back. We have to make a stand. Right. They would make the stand. They would get wiped out. And then women and children killed and raped. And then they, and then someone would come along and say, no, no, we, we're got to make peace. We have to make peace. And so they would make a deal. Mm-hmm. And then, the pattern would repeat. The deal would yeah. be broken. Someone would decide to fight back. They'd get knocked down. Then horrible destruction and over and over and over again. And I think that's the same thing we see here. You know, mm-hmm. the, you've got this kid, Aaron, who's talking about peace in the future. He prays. And in his prayer, this guy comes up and kicks him. Mm-hmm. And then we convince someone to take the stand and to use the justice system to try to get justice. And there is no justice. And then what happens right after that is this is the lynching yeah. is that you tr- and, and the riot is in here too. It's like the pattern of, 
okay, we're going to believe in the system. The system doesn't work for us. We're going to fight against the system. We're going to get killed and beaten and injured and we're going to give up and then we're going to do it again and we're going to do it again. And the, the pattern's still going on today. Yeah. Um, I looked up the statistics. There were 4,743 documented lynchings Jesus. between 1882 and 1968. That's documented, documented, which means there's probably many, many more. Yeah. And you did, for the purposes of the movie, you know that, uh, Aaron and his dad got this little kid to go in yep. and testify against those yeah. guys. And so this is once again, retribution. Yep. Yep. And then we cut to the next day. Again, we're in the ruins. We see the dead burnt animals, by the way, these are real animals they bought from a butcher uh, and it really stunk. And so when they're putting handkerchiefs in front of their noses, that's because it stinks. <laughs> and then this is, Th this line is one of those lines where the metaphor rubs me the wrong way. Uh, Gene Hackman says, You know, cows won't run away. No one knows why. They're just stupid, I guess. They just stand there until their bellies swell up and they pop. Their relatives in Detroit. Are they going to go? I didn't give them any choice. The juxtaposition between the cows that are too stupid to get out of the fire and the family you have to force to leave this town and go to Detroit is one that I do not like. Yeah. I think that's an unfortunate metaphor. But you um, have to understand this is once again, Steve, this is Gene Hackman's character. And this is the, uh, his daddy talking. Yeah. And yeah. this is, this is the complexities, you know, of, he, there, this is before political correctness. Mm, so he yeah. doesn't know how to control himself. Yeah. And it's the beauty of his character a little bit because he, he still hasn't come full circle. He still has those racist ties that, yeah. you know, he'll probably never shake. And this is one of them. Mm. And it's important for the film, Steve. Mm. And it, it, might, it, it might not be something that we like, but it really informs, you know, Anderson's character, I think. It's a great point. It's a really great point. Let's get something straight, all right? This whole thing was fucked up. The moment we turned it into a show for the newsman. The moment those three kids disappeared, it was news. The moment the three civil rights workers disappeared, it was news. To me, they're just kids. They're still missing. What's missing is the 50 minutes Pell said he was with his wife. And Gene Hackman takes this in, and then he says, "Okay, that's a tr that okay is such an important turning point in the film." Yes, it is. Here's the thought I had. This is what I wrote down in my notes at this moment. I wrote down the only reason the FBI is there is because of the two white civil rights activists that got killed, not because of the African American. Right. And then the next thing I wrote down is. The only reason Hollywood is making this movie is because it's about two white FBI guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's sad. but true. Mm -hmm. So let's go to a rally so we can hear Stephen Tobolowsky make a speech. <laughs> I love Mississippi. Again, he's so, he's so good at this horrible he's, part. He's great. They... They hate Mississippi. They hate us because we present a shining example of successful segregation. And one of the first things we see is their families here. 
There are little kids here. Yep. This is like a big party. These northern students with their atheist communist bosses that have come into our community this summer with the wish to destroy it. So we also see that our FBI guys are taking down license plate number and investigating. You got no right to be here. This is a political meeting. Oh, it looks like a political meeting, but smells more like Klan to me. And that's when we hear Tobolowski go on. He says, They cannot by force turn our communities into replicas of their communities. Communities in which Negroes run riot, unrestrained and unpunished, as they do this summer in the streets of Harlem, or they do in the streets of Oakland, or they do in the streets of Chicago. Once again, you know, and I allude to this in American History X, is the same old talking points and just uneducated, you know, it's embarrassing. But this is the way that they thought, and this is the way that their parents thought, and this is the way that their grandparents thought. And when it's programmed into you, it's very hard to break free, which makes uh, Francis McDormand's character so terrific and refreshing and unusual and uh you know that's that's the kkk and it's so tobolowski has those same talking points in a speech earlier you know almost to a t it's very well written once again the screenwriter really does know how to to pack to pack a punch and uh he 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 and he doesn't hold back there's no fear in chris's script and and you know and hats off to him for that Once again, if you are tempted to look at this speech and go, man, this is something of the past, think about how often you've heard someone talk about thugs. Mm -hmm. Think about how often someone you heard cities being overrun by immigrants or sanctuary cities, or you've heard uh, that low cost housing is going to invade the suburbs and destroy them. It's the exact same logic points and that that's what they want to do to our communities i mean you're hearing this exact same stuff today the language might not be quite as extreme as this language but the basic point is the same (laughs) i would like to disagree with you it's even more extreme nowadays i think than it was because at least back then they were holding these rallies not on social media not on camera not purposely for a wide audience. I think the language is more extreme now. I think the, because you have to keep re-upping it, right? You have to keep making it more and more uh, uh, dangerous so that new generations keep coming back to it over and over again. We're a more extreme society. So therefore you have to appeal to us at a higher level of fear and a higher level of toxicity for us to listen. And that's a shame, you know, it's a goddamn shame. Gene Hackman goes to visit Francis McDormand. Oh, man. Hatred isn't something you're born with. It gets tough. In school, they said segregation's what's said in the Bible. And she can quote chapter and verse. You get told it enough times, you believe it. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in the previous scene, we saw little kids Mm -hmm. listening to that speech. Parker shows at least three or four shots of kids' faces at that mm-hmm. rally. Yes, purposefully. Yep, yep. Because we understand the world as it's taught to us. I believe that hatred. You live it. You breathe it. You marry it. <laughs> you marry it. That's her moment right there. You know, the, that speech. You, you live it. You breathe it. You marry it. 
I mean, uh, Francis McDormand just oh I my mean, god, one of the great one of the great actors of all time, and what and one of the most unique and powerful careers. Uh, she she might she's among the most fearless actors I can think of. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And her um, new one, her new film, is getting so much acclaim as well. So oh yeah, you know, hopefully she'll be nominated again. Yeah, she, he touches her. She moves away. She ends up in this sort of hallway, distant. And here's what Alan Parker said. He says he doesn't want to impose on actors, particularly not on good actors. Mm. He wants to give, he gives them a few requirements, but doesn't tell them what to do because he wants to see what they do. Mm. You know, so he said where they wanted, where he wanted them to be at the end, which is in this hallway. But that was about it. This is the quote I really like from him. You can't create a performance. You can only create the circumstances where the actors can create a performance. Mm. You know, when you're directing actors, it's, it's so, it's so difficult, especially if you, you know, you write a script. I mean, I've been in the situation many times where, you know, they're not doing the scenes the way that, you know, I envisioned them when I wrote them, but then something magical happens. It, it might not happen right away, but, you know, in the past, I've whispered to directors and to try and get some sort of code word for him to, to, to speak with the actors. If you're, if you're listening out here and you want to direct movies, don't ever tell, do a line read with an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they, will, they specifically ask you to, which yeah, sometimes will happen. Right. will kill you. Yeah. And you will never work again. No, I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> it's amazing when you have good actors that can really sort of come together and figure out the emotion. I mean, Parker's exactly right. This is the trick. It's 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 the trick when you're a director on how to handle if they're not getting to that point. Now with Hackman and Francis McDormand, you know, you don't have to worry. You know, yeah. you have to worry about other actors but still this is just this is two actors at the top of their game uh, yep. from an emotional point of view mm-hmm. i mean how do you go there i mean that's why you need to appreciate acting as, as much as they drive us crazy you know um <laughs> to see her go to this place in this mm-hmm. scene it's freaking remarkable mm-hmm. Um, it also goes to the thing we were talking about Gene Hackman's character before about the degree to which he genuinely cares about this person is genuinely has a connection is attracted and needs to get information from her. Yeah. And the moment in which she moves away and yeah. then he goes towards her, I think you can see all that in his body mm. and the betrayal. This is a betrayal as well as a connection. Yeah. Like he's giving her an opportunity to confess that she needs and he's there for her. As because he genuinely cares about her and he's using her. My husband drove one of the cars that never Shh. He tries to stop her on some level. Yeah. That's what you want to hear, isn't it? And what I find really interesting about the line, particularly the isn't it, is she knows the con- that con- conflict within Gene Hackman as well. Mm-hmm. Like she understands that this is part of the the exchange that's happening in this moment. You right. Know? Right. She's using him. Yeah. Yeah. She's using him to finally get this off of her chest. And I'd like to give her a little bit of credit that she knows what the end result of this admission is going to be. Right. (laughs) Like, you know what I'm saying? Listen, we're men. We think we're fucking smart. Women are smarter than us about this kind of shit. They can play the long game better than we can because they've had to survive in a patriarchal society for so long 
the long game is the only game that most can play because of the situation. So in this, I mean, because if you look at her at the end, it's very much like she gets the end result. It almost seems like that she wanted, which is to get rid of him. And it, in sadly, she had to endure a terrible beating in order to make it happen. But he had been beating her emotionally probably for years. And so physically she endured one and probably had smacked her, I bet, around a couple of times or a few times before. So she endured one beating, one more beating, so that she could be rid of this. And she never, like, fully, you know, indulges in the Hackman thing, with that, which I think speaks volumes about her as a, as a person as well. Well, and I think she wanted to do what's right. You know, yes, like that, that of course, she, it's all mixed she, in. Yeah, yes, it's all in there. Yep. It's beautifully shot. They're in this hallway. We stay wide. We don't go in with them, which which uh, Parker shot. He yeah. shot close ups in coverage and then made the very, very smart move to just stay wide. Did he say yeah. that on the commentary, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. He said he said he said they tried <laughs> cutting it in and it made it worse. And then they said, no, no, we'll just just stay away. Stay back. Oh, wow. Love it. It's, almost, it's very similar. It's very similar to her talking at the window. Remember? Mm. It, it, it's so funny because as an editor, my instinct is always to cut, mm. and it's and that's so that would be hard for me to not cut in, mm. you know, because editors want to cut. Do cinematographers want their nice wide shots to stay in the shot because it's so pretty? And editors are like, well, I want to see that, and I want to see that, and I want to see that, you know. You, you never see shots like that anymore with today's filmmakers. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's one of the stuff that drives you crazy. And we cut to the excavation because now we finally found the bodies and they're buried in an earthen dam, which is in fact where the actual bodies of the actual murders uh, were buried is inside mm -hmm. of an earthen dam. And now things, the pace picks up because they're bringing the bodies in and Brad Dorif is one of the people with the gurneys bringing the bodies in. Um, and we go in through these corridors and he gets pulled aside by the sheriff into another room. Clinton, you got some problems at home you need to tend to. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, pull your head out of your ass and get home. Cut to the house. Brad Dereef comes in with Michael Rooker and some other guys, and yeah. she knows. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's that. Yeah, right. Initially, she's just like, hey. And then when he sees the other guys, there's that moment. And then when he grabs her. And this is, once again, the incredible acting of Francis McDormand. There's no resisting there's this utterance of sound from her mouth that immediately puts you if you're watching it in a place of utter desperation to help her and to wish this isn't happening and it's brilliant acting you know and yeah. she takes and she you know what he does to her and the the punching all of that well and and, and he does it in almost similar fashion yeah. too which, right yeah, which we'll get you soon yeah 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 you just gave me couple of other thoughts hmm. so the first thought i had because i was kind of well how does the sheriff know you know how does he know that this happened and all of a sudden i went to the neighbor yep you know neighbor. that everything all right you know you watch hackman go into this house in the middle of the night yep neighbor calls the sheriff because they go why at this moment did they immediately find the bodies well yeah. someone talked right that's the first thought i had second thought i had is I wonder if the sheriff sent Michael Rooker and the other guys. Oh, just to make sure. Just to make sure. That he did what, what he's yeah. essentially insinuating he needs to do. Yep. I, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. That's a good point. Very good point. The FBI guys are celebrating. We've got some booze and some paper cups and the phone rings and Ward answers it. 
Oh. It says, where puts down the phone, says, where's Mr. Anderson? They say the motel. And now we run into the hospital. He knows, man. He knows yeah. what he's, he knows. He's, he's got to control this wild dog. He knows. Go get Anderson. Bring him here. Don't tell him why. Don't tell him anything. Just get him here. Defoe is alone with her. And then in comes Gene Hackman. Mm. And he looks. And there's a moment and a beat. And then he turns and starts to go. Mr. Anderson, stop. Mr. Anderson. I love the way he says, go to hell. Mm. It Mm. is just, he doesn't turn around for dramatic purposes and say, you go to hell. No, it's just go to hell. I'm going. Yeah, I'm doing this. I like it or not. (laughs) And it's a call. This scene's been coming. The entire, for almost two hours of this movie, this scene has been coming. The final physical confrontation between these two guys. We're not killers. That's the difference between them and us. That's the difference between them and you. And, and the, the next ways they come at each other. Um, Hackman says, don't you have a world to change? And Ward says, that's right. And I'm changing it. Oh, you're just as arrogant as you are stupid. You're changing it too. Well, damn, well, I'm going to make some changes right now. Don't be so stupid. Don't go messing this up just because you're partial to fooling around with witnesses. You... Of all the things to do, he slaps him. Right. Yeah. And, and like we as bitch. men, yeah, like a bitch. And we as men know that. Like the slap is, you don't do, you punch me. You don't slap me. That's, there's the thing about that uh, masculinity wise that is yeah. symbolic. So he yeah. sees Ward because Ward is thinner and more waifish looking. He sees Ward as almost somewhat uh, lesser son. than. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. He thinks he's weak. He thinks that he just needs all these agents and he needs all this stuff. And from the very opening scene in the car, he was disrespectful. Oh, you're just a college boy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Kennedy boy. Yeah, right. There you go. And this moment of literal physical reversal because Hackman's got him down on the car. It's incredible. Yeah. And then then Defoe flips him over and immediately has the gun on him. I don't mean shit. I have a gun unless you're ready to use it. I'll kill you right now if you don't listen to what I have to tell you. He cocks the gun. And I love they smack the glasses off. I love that he doesn't have the glasses on. This is like, you know, there's no barriers. They are looking at each other fully. Uh, By the way, you just reminded me. Parker said that uh, William Defoe didn't find his character. And this goes to something you've said many times, John, Mm. until he put the costume on, the hairstyle, and the glasses. It makes all the difference. As an actor, it makes all the difference. You feel... The character at that point. Yeah. yeah. This is this is the key casting of the movie with Defoe. Yeah. If you get some corporate softy, this moment doesn't work. This is why you know he saw Platoon. Yeah. You know Parker saw Platoon, and he goes, "Okay, this guy in the movie is almost the moral center a little bit. Definitely the moral center. Mm. It, it it just and then you remember, oh yeah, remember he gets in a fight with Barnes and Platoon. Mm. Yeah. Oh right. Remember when yeah, Barnes, right. You remember when Barnes is gonna kill the freaking yeah. uh, Vietnamese person and Defoe just they go ape shit on each other. Yeah, yeah. You know this is kind of that scene, but Mississippi as opposed to Saigon. Right. Right. Good point. Jesus. Good point. <laughs> I haven't seen Platoon in forever. It's been forever. Yeah. Um, this scene is so great because Hackman thinks he's gonna assert his dominance. Defoe instead asserts his dominance. They break apart, and then he says, we'll go after them together. You wouldn't know how. You're going to teach me how. You don't have the guts. Not only do I have the guts, I have the authority. (laughs) We'll nail them any way we can, even your way. We do it my way. 
your way. With my people. Whatever it takes. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. And then we have the great button, which John, you brought up before. So I love this by Bird. Kevin Dunn and says, You think he would have shot me? Oh, oh absolutely, yes. sir. Absolutely, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no hesitation. No thinking about it. Nothing. Just boom. You know, because he's probably worked with this guy before and he knows this guy is not to be underestimated. This scene right here is, is all Defoe and mm-hmm. it's, it's all about his character. Yeah. And this is where he makes the leap officially. He, he's going to war, you know. Mm-hmm. So far, he's been playing by the rules. He's been playing by the rules against an enemy that has no rules. Right. And, right. and Hackman makes that perfectly abundantly clear. And it clicks with, with, with Ward here. And okay. it's, it's, it's the beauty of the scene. Well, and you have to have the actor William Defoe be able to go toe to toe with the actor Gene Hackman, <laughs> which is not an easy so, thing to do. Yeah, yeah. so amazing. Um, here's what's crazy. So the last film uh, we did, David, is The Untouchables. Yeah, I'm editing it right now. And in The Untouchables, you have the young state uh, straight arrow guy and mm-hmm. the old grizzled guy who's <laughs> ready to move outside the law, and the young. A straight arrow guy has to learn from the old grizzled mm-hmm. guy how to get things done moving and, and it's like it's the same thing ex- yeah yeah except you know it's like we said before in a buddy movie usually they bond they start to work together you know act end of act one early act two and yeah. that's certainly what happens in the untouchables you know yeah, yeah. this we're near the end of the movie <laughs> yeah, there's been so funny. much conflict between these guys <laughs> right right what are you prepared to do just like a walk to bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> uh, uh, we're at a funeral. But the state of Mississippi won't even allow these white boys to be buried in the same cemetery as this Negro boy. And it's uh, Frankie Faison. I say I have no more love to give. I have only anger in my heart today, and I want you to be angry with me. I am sick and I am tired and I want you to be sick and tired with me. I, I, I am sick and tired of going to the funerals of black men who have been murdered by white men. I, I am sick and tired of the people of this country who continue to allow these things to happen. What is an unalienable right if you are a Negro? What does it mean equal treatment under the law? Again, have we heard this kind of thing recently? It's amazing, this movie, on what it just the precedent that it sets. Well, and, and what's amazing to me, I think it, it's almost the opposite, is there's been this thing that's been happening in America for 100 plus, 200, 300 years. Yeah. And that we've refused to see. Yeah. And this movie gets made in 88. And we look, we look at it for a little while, but we've refused to really see, mm-hmm. you know, and we're still we're still there. The mayor is going to get in his car <laughs> and he gets grabbed and we cut to this it. scene is crazy mm-hmm. uh, in a shack. And there is an African-American man. This is Baja Dijola. I'm going to tell you a story. By the way, this is one of the changes from the original script. In the original script, uh, Gene Hackman brings in uh, a mafia hitman to intimidate this guy it's parker's <laughs> idea to turn it into an african-american fbi guy oh fantastic idea wow. yeah he tells a story about 
this mm. African-American kid who's taking his girlfriend home, three white boys pick him up and take him for a ride. He hadn't done anything except be a Negro. And they took him to a shack. Shack like, like this one. And they took out a razor blade. And at that moment, he takes out a razor blade. Mm. It's funny watching Arlie Ermy play scared. <laughs> you know? Because we've only you only see him mostly being a strong character. Yeah. Uh but he just he's great. I wish right? he didn't I wish he didn't have the tape over his mouth. Mm. You know, mm. almost. So he could beg, so he could speak. Mm. So we could just see, yeah, just a little bit more, you know what I mean? And they pull down his pants, they spread his legs, and they sliced off his scrotum, put it in a coffee cup. He goes up to the mayor and he has that razor blade right there. And he says, Is there something you want to say to me? Now we've started to move forward using Anderson's techniques. Mm-hmm. We cut to pouring rain. Uh, this is all in one shot. And by the way, Hackman looked at the setup and went, oh, you get much wetter on that side and the rain is going in your face. I'm going to be on the other side because <laughs> <laughs> he is the pro actor and he made Defoe take the rain in the face, <laughs> which I think is funny. Don't put me on your perch, Mr. Ward. Don't drag me into your gutter, Mr. Anderson. These people crawled out of a sewer, Mr. Ward. Now maybe the gutter's where we should be. Right, and this is an interesting moment because earlier, right, he'd said, we're going to do it your way. We'll follow, we'll follow your things, blah, blah, blah. And here is where uh, uh, Ward actually sees what Hackman's ways really are and <laughs> has to, and has come face to face with it. And he realizes that maybe he spoke too soon. Uh, and But there's no stopping Ward now. You yeah. know, he's going to the end of this thing. He's playing this thing out. Yeah. Well, and what he's saying is true. I mean, these things, yeah. this could get your case completely thrown out. Why do you think, John, that they yeah. call each other Mr. Mr. Anderson and Mr. Ward? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a tough question to try and answer. Um, I guess it's protocol, but can you right. imagine the FBI calling each other Mr. <laughs> Today? You know, yeah. I mean. Johnson and Johnson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Comey, you're out of line, Mr. Comey. Yeah. I don't care what you say. Karen said this while we were watching the movie. This is my wife. She said, and after she said it, I couldn't stop hearing it. She said, are you, are you hearing Mr. Anderson? Oh yeah. The whole movie matrix. Yeah, <laughs> For whole, the matrix. Yeah. And it might've been a reference to that, you know, but oh uh, yeah, could maybe, be. but because it's later, but like, I, I think this is also the Mr. Thing immediately as an audience subconsciously you have to imply a certain level of respect for both of them as you're watching it as a viewer right but i also think this is as steve mentioned earlier these guys aren't gonna hang out later and you know be best buds and do whatever these are guys on a job they have to work together and we don't see like with planes, trains, and automobiles every once in a while, we get these really like intimate moments of vulnerability and connection. There's really not that in this movie that much. And I would imagine Ward is one of the more trickier people to actually get him to put his guard down, to have a connection with somebody. So this Mr. Stuff works in a way to reinforce the fact that these aren't guys that are going to That's be it. buddy yes. cops, right? Yeah. These are guys that yeah. are on a job. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great. It's a great point. Um, we go to the great setup scene where somehow they called a meeting for all the guys that are important who all show up together and realize, wait, you didn't call the meeting. You didn't no, call the meeting. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they focus on what's his name? What's uh, uh, Lester? Lester. Yeah. yeah, Lester. Because Lester uh, starts to lose it a little bit. <laughs> shit, now, now, if you didn't call us, who the fuck yeah. did? Shut up. Now, wait a minute. Well, is this some kind of bullshit setup? Now that's Lester, shut up. We're all going to walk straight out of here and say nothing. And now we go and pick up Lester. Mm-hmm. And we put him in the car. And Hackman does every single move that isn't legal. Your oh. buddies have already turned you in. Mm-hmm. You know, this is all stuff that would get thrown out in court. I didn't kill him. I only shot him in the ass. We know that. But your buddy sees it differently. Your buddy tells it that you killed the kid. Now, you either go on the record for us right now, or it's going to be your ass we're talking about, not just the black kids. And the, and the best part of it, to me, is after this bit of intimidation, where do they drop him off? In the, in the, the black, black neighborhood. The black neighborhood, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he just starts taking off. And he just runs away. Well, and this is the thing. I mean, these guys are, you know, without all of the structure yeah. to protect them. Of course. Yeah. Well, and it harkens back to what were they saying the whole first, all the way up to this point? Bureau procedure, Mr. Yeah. Anderson. <laughs> and there's not a whole lot of bureau procedure anymore. The nope. bureau, bureau procedure is gone. Uh, we're in the barbershop and our deputy's getting a shave. Oh, here we go. And Hackman takes the razor. This is tricky. <laughs> they make it look so easy, don't they? Have you, have you gotten a straight razor shave, by the way? Um, oh, I have. Yeah, cool. I got I got it for my it's birthday. Fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. It's a great experience. The music. If you go down, there's places in LA downtown where they do them, and it's like the music is playing. They use the old school stuff, and it's a forty minute to an hour situation. And you get your face rubbed after with the aftershave, a face massage. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So that was, that was not my experience. <laughs> Here's what? my experience. Is that why you grew a beard, Steve? Well, I've almost always had I've almost always had a beard, and there was a time uh, John and I were friends years and years ago where I lost tons and tons of weight. I lost yeah. eighty pounds, and I decided if I lost fifty pounds, I was going to shave the beard. And then I decided I so I'd lost fifty pounds, and I went, okay, I'm going to go. If I'm going to do this, I need to go to like the good place. Like I want to, I want the guy. And so I went, where was their good place? I didn't really know anything. And there wasn't like Yelp and things like that then. And so I went Beverly Hills. I'm going to find a place in Beverly Hills. <laughs> so I call up, you know, Barbara and Beverly Hills and, you know, do you, you know, straight razor shave? Yes, we do. And I go in and there's, and I open the door and there's like an 80 year old dude and the place <laughs> is empty. And I should have turned around and walked out. Yes. But I, <laughs> I didn't. And I went in. Okay. So can we do this? And the guy like, you know, does all the towel and all the, all that stuff. It was very nice. And then he got the razor and I swear to God, shaky hand. And I go, this is God. And the thing is I hadn't shaved my beard in a decade. So my skin was super sensitive. Wasn't used to a razor. And he cut me and then he cut me again. I think he cut oh me six God. times. Jesus. And it, oh became, and it transitioned into, and he, I could hear him like, <sighs> <sighs> as he's did, like, did you pay for it? Yeah, I, I, of course I did because <laughs> I'm not good at confrontation. And, and, and what it became was like, oh, this isn't like this pleasurable thing to give myself as a celebration. This has become a rite of passage. This is like something <laughs> I have true. to endure. 
Yeah. So that's the only time I had a straight razor shave. Right. <laughs> um, but this shave, this shave is going to be even worse because Hackman takes yeah. over and he says, I got a question for you, Clinton. You don't mind if I call you Clinton. I feel like I know you so well. And he says, I got a question for you, Clinton. You don't mind if I call you Clinton, do you? I feel like I know you so well. And he talks about the speech he made outside right before they killed the kids. You've struck a blow for the white man. Is that what you said, Clinton? So it sounds like he was the highest up in the clan that was at this event. Um, and then he cuts him. Did you make a speech the night that you beat up your wife, Clinton? Brad Tarif's silent performance is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fear. And then it, then it escalates. And as it starts to escalate, Defoe turns away, who's watching from outside, and he slams him against the mirror. He slams him, puts his head in the sink. He throws him over the chairs. And as he's doing this, he's asking all the questions. Make no mistake about it, deputy. I'll cut your fucking head clear off and not give a shit how it reads in the report sheet. And then he walks away, and that chair, barber's chair, spins, and Dorit just lies <laughs> lies there. Uh, this is—I don't know what Parker says about this too, because I haven't watched the commentary. But the sound of his foot, I just think it's brilliant that he holds the camera on that. Dorit, in no way does he get up or push back or fight or just look around like, "Oh my God, is he really gone?" He's essentially been completely castrated by Hackman in this moment. And he is just com- deferential. He's destroyed. It's frozen. And like like frozen. awesome. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the, the clicking of the hitting of the door with his foot is just a brilliant sound effect to show you how irrelevant he is now. You know, where he was a big threat throughout the movie and his smart ass response to Gene Hacken, remember, as he walks in now, this is the culmination of that uh, and the end of this relationship between them, you know? Um, so I don't know about the sound, yeah. but according to Alan Parker, the spinning chair was an accident. What? Which I can't really believe, but that's what he says. He says wow. it caught on Hackman's pants leg as he was walking out and they just went with it and Darif went, I guess I'll just lay here. <laughs> yeah, he um, doesn't move. He doesn't move. He doesn't make a sound. He's just, he's almost shell-shocked. Hackman takes it out on Brad DeReef the same exact way Brad DeReef took it out on her earlier. Throwing her up against the wall, him throwing up him against the wall, and just a vicious uh, beating of not only punching, but throwing people across of a room is 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 so cinematic and so perfect. I mean, this is just turning Hackman loose, you know, to just smile. You know, you know, a lot of this was improvised. Yeah. That smile, you know, throughout the whole movie, Brown Jabeef has this smile and it finally comes back to just haunt him through Hackman, you know? We cut to Lester's house and he's <laughs> sitting with his wife. His wife's got a kid. And suddenly, just like we've seen with Hackman and Defoe in the motel, glass explodes in we go oh my god the you know what's happening and lester runs looks out and there's the burning cross so obviously the clan has found out that lester betrayed them and he runs out and we see the guys with hoods and a truck pulls up behind him and man it's the same thing we saw before they tie the rope around him please please i didn't say a thing i swear it's a setup i didn't say nothing 
and they throw that you know rope over the tree and they are just about to hang him when up comes our guys and the guys in hoods run away lucky we've been watching your ass lester if you go on the record mr collins we'll give you protection if not not they're gonna kill you anyway and i love the last bit of oh you need a toilet lester oh jesus lester i like the way he says you need a toilet <laughs> and then what do we see? And it's so funny because I hadn't seen the movie in a long time, and I'm watching. Yeah. I'm going, "Oh, I get it." And we see the guys take off the hoods, and it's yeah. our FBI guys. By the way, you know what's great is one of the FBI guys is Tobin Bell, who is Jigsaw from uh, the Saw series. So uh, Tobin Bell is so oh. known for playing villains and playing. So it's kind of rare to see him on the good side. So it's kind of funny to see him in this. But of course, one of those like good guys that walks the line. Of course, right. of course. <laughs> well, when I don't think I mentioned it, but when the Hackman guys show up, they yeah. are quite clearly look different. Oh, yeah. Than the Ward guys. Oh, yeah. For good reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, gang. Yeah. Uh, by there was there was an FBI uh, informant, and he was yeah. uh, later revealed to be uh, Maynard King, uh, who was a highway patrolman. He's the guy who 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 informed for the FBI in this case. Yep. We cut to uh, Michael Rooker doing some welding. We're only hearing music. There's no natural sound going on. And here are the FBI guys, and he starts to run. And there's Gene Hackman with the handcuffs, and it gives him a little wink. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is where this is sort of the wrap up sequence. So we we see him walking out of the courthouse and see in a freeze frame that he got 10 years for violation of civil rights. We see Lester got three years. Uh, Brad Jarif gets seven years. The sheriff says, I'll see you boys before supper. And he was acquitted. And then we go get Stephen Tobolowski and he gets 10 years. And then we have this, this this weird moment where we cut to this FBI guy's coming down the stairs and there's someone in the foreground. And then we realized that the mayor, uh, Arlie Emery, Ermy has hung himself. Why did he do it? He, he wasn't even in on it. Wasn't even clan. And then Ward makes this speech. Mr. Bird, he was guilty. Anyone's guilty who watches this happen and pretends it isn't. He was guilty, all right. Just as guilty as the fanatics who pulled the trigger. Maybe we all are. Apparently, the speech was much longer. And it had stuff about the senators are guilty, the governors are guilty, governor, congressmen are guilty, everyone who ever laughed at a racist joke is guilty, everyone who held their tongue when someone said racist is guilty, and on and on and on. And Parker very wisely cut it out. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's pretty preachy already. The message um, is there. And Hackman goes back to uh, Francis McDormand's house which has been wrecked. I'm real sorry. So am I. Where will you go? I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying. This is my home. Born here. Probably die here. If I had wanted to leave, I would have left by now. There's just a powerful, yeah. Yeah. It's a powerful thing for her to say. There's enough good people around here to know what I did was right. And enough ladies like the way I fixed their hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he takes her hand and kisses her fingers and starts to go and she says hey if you're ever in Des Moines don't send me a postcard 
it's the perfect way to end the movie and their relationship. You know, it's impo- it's an impossible relationship between these two. They're too different, but at the same time, they're a lot alike. Mm-hmm. He's an FBI agent and he's going to move on to the next case and she knows it. And that's why she says that line, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's hearkening back to the same line that uh, he gave his wife. Yeah. And she doesn't want any part of that. She's just been through hell. And uh, Hackman is more hell. And she knows it. Yeah. She's already been with a guy uh, from the law. She's not going to yeah. go again. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. She's done it already. We hear the gospel music rise up. We cannot sing in the future. And we cut to the singer, and this is Lanny McBride. She's the person who arranged all the gospel music for the shoot. And we see this big gathering, and there are white people and black people and white kids and adults and people from all walks of life. And that choice to me is a little too far, frankly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Is it the I, Rocky Four moment? If you could change, yeah. I can change. It, it, it's like, look, it all, everybody's coming <laughs> together. And I just, I think the movie is so dark. Yeah. and difficult that this ending doesn't I, I for me i mean I, I you know i don't know how you guys feel about it david i think you can speak to this more is this a hollywood executive coming in and going you know what we need a feel-good ending moment can you put in a church scene with everybody from all colors and all walks of life singing well you know how i took it is i took it of all the stuff that's going on with black lives matter that there are a lot of white people yes in those marches and mm-hmm. in those moments and uh, I do think that um, this is a sort of a turning point. I, I didn't feel the same way as you did, Steve. I, I was moved. I feel like I would have liked to have been one of those people there. Mm. Um, I would have been honored to be one of those people there sure. because those people probably are putting themselves at risk as well by mm. being there. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of honor in this scene. And uh, I didn't, it didn't go too over the top of me. There was a few faces and all that. Mm-hmm. But I think it resonates completely to what we've seen on television lately. I think it works. You know, I, yeah. you, might be, you might be a little right. I think I agree with you a little bit. But overall, I didn't have a problem with it. No, it just puts the button on this. Like, and Alan Parker was driven to make this film to highlight and showcase. And we said this at the beginning, right? How he wanted to take over some of the screenwriting on this because he wanted the audience to feel the effect of this. And then he wanted to leave them with this message that there is possibilities, right? Even her, even the last line that, or some of the last, one of the last lines, Francis McDormand says, there are good people here who know I did the right thing, right? That our, our initial reaction is just to paint the South in one way, always constantly but it's, it's different there. It's not a monolith. You know, there are plenty of people who knew what was happening was wrong. They just didn't have the power to stop it necessarily, or the immediate power to stop it, I guess I would say. And so seeing this scene and it's the eighties. So I'm not surprised by a scene like this, where it's like, boom, you know, yeah. this is well, what we're trying you know, to go so for. Pe- you know, and I took I, off of American history X, you know, the ending Eddie Furlong's dead character quoting Abraham Lincoln. A lot yeah. of people gave me a lot of shit for writing that. And, <laughs> but when you write a piece on race, you know, the reason why you do it is because you do want to affect change for the better, right. you know, or else why do it? And that's just all Parker's doing right here. It's his, this is his way of showing it. Yeah. And he's certainly entitled to it. It all goes to what 
is the emotional reaction of the audience and, the, and mm -hmm. not everyone's going to react the same, you know? And so my guess is particularly in 1988, there were a lot of people crying seeing this moment, oh, you know, I'm sure I did, I'm sure you know, did. Yeah. the fact that my reaction watching it this time in 2020 mm. was slightly different. That's not. And, and the thing too, as a, whether you're a writer or director, you're editing the film, you're shooting for this emotion. You don't, yep. you, you're making this yep. choice. This is a choice I'm making. You know, you don't know how it's really going to go over. Right. Um, Defoe and Hackman walk away from the, this funeral, uh, and Defoe says, You want to drive with it? Yeah. The Rupert is key. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, God, I missed that. It's the first time he uses his actual name because now oh, there's I a there are possibilities for their relationship now at the end. Yeah. That's more Hollywood than the, the scene that we were talking about. <laughs> Great point, man. <laughs> and as they head off to the car, uh, the camera pulls off of them and pushes in on a gravestone, a broken gravestone. Yeah. And it says 1962, not forgotten. Uh, by the way, the actual gravestones of the victims of these murders were repeatedly desecrated for decades. Here's one interesting thing that I read. So, so this case was actually reopened in 2002 with the help of three high school students who worked on it as a school project. Mm. And they found one more person, Edgar Ray Killen, was charged for the three counts of manslaughter in 2005, sentenced to 60 years and died in prison in 2018. Wow. So three high school kids and their teacher found this guy. Wow. Yeah. And, and he served more time than any of the original guys because from what i read in the in the case files they were convicted but none of them served more than five years at that time yeah. we obviously had a way more harsher view of justice later on in the 2000s and so the sentence fit how society had changed viewing crimes like this and an another interesting tidbit is i was offered to write will smith's company came to me to do the edgar ray killen oh really story. Get out yes of and what happened was, is when he was in prison, he met a black kid who was in there for, for wrongful charges. Mm -hmm. And this black kid, Edgar Ray Killen, was regulated to a wheelchair. I forget what it was for. Mm -hmm. he, be, he had a relationship, a friendship, a very odd friendship with this black kid in prison. Wow. And and the black kid was trying to sell this. He was one of the producers on it with mm. Will Smith, and they were trying to get me to write it for free on spec. And I said, right. "No, thank you. I've done the. <laughs> want to cut me a check? You know, I might I might consider it, but you know, particularly when it's so Will Smith's wants you to write something for free. Yeah. It's like yeah, <laughs> he still got that money. Yeah, happens a lot." <laughs> um, here's something I, I read and it just seems impossible to me, but it, according to what I read, they started shooting in March of 1988, wrapped in May of 88 and released the film in December of 88. Wow. That's, That's it just seems crazy. That is so fast. Yeah. Well, they just, they knew they had something, Orion knew they had something special and they want to get it out for the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, here's uh, you know we've talked about this controversy around the film throughout i want to give you a couple of the quotes that i saw regarding this and you know take take what what you will mm -hmm. uh coretta scott king boycotted the film and she said 
How long will we have to wait before Hollywood finds the courage and integrity to tell the stories of some of the many thousands of black men, women, and children who put their lives on the line for equality? There's nothing in that sentence I could disagree with. Yeah, fair. Merle Evers Williams, which is the wife of Medgar Evers, who's a slain civil rights uh, advocate, said, it was unfortunate that it was so narrow in scope it did not show one black role model that today's youth who look at the movie could remember. Head of the NAACP said it reeks of with dishonesty, deception, and fraud, and portrays African Americans as cowed, submissive, and blank-faced. The families of the actual slain civil rights workers hated it uh, and felt that it used the murders of their family members to turn the FBI into heroes. So uh, one person called this movie Rambo Meets the Klan, which I don't think that's accurate. I don't I don't think that's what this is. I have to tell you, I have seen this movie many, many times and never once did I feel like the FBI were necessarily, quote unquote, the heroes of this movie. To me, it is these two men, uh, whether they were FBI or not, who were the heroes of this movie as they tried to get the answers uh, and get the evidence they needed to convict these people. And, uh, but I totally respect how people could look at it absolutely and extrapolate uh, that. Um, but for me, I've, I've never walked away, you know, feeling that way about the FBI. I don't know if any movie I've ever walked away feeling that way about the FBI. So, well, and they're complicated people. I mean, they're far from like, you know, white hat heroes. Um, here's what Alan Parker said. And I like the way he kind of frames this. He says, this film is a fiction. It was very controversial. I hope many things will be made about the civil rights struggle. Some people think that it should have been something else, but in the end, I'm very proud of it. Is it the definitive civil rights story? No. Is it a civil rights story from a black point of view? No. Did this film get made because the two heroes in it are still white? Possibly. But that's a reflection of American society as much as it is of the film industry. The point is the film was made. And if it opened up a debate to discuss racism in America, and if they use the inadequacy of my film to point that out, I'm still proud because I can only do one film. Would I have made the film the same way, even with all the controversy? Yes, I would. Absolutely. You know, it's a damn terrific movie. And a lot of these comments are, they're, they're justified in, 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 in certain subtext, but, you know, this is a movie about two white guys and race and how they deal with it. This is a, you know, at the time, the black population was probably, you know, less than 10%. I think it's around 13 or 14% now. Yep. And we had a great deal of racism coming out of white people around this time period out of the South. And here we address that. Here he attacks Gene yeah. he, with a character who is, you know, for the most part, the beginning of a movie, a good old boy, a sheriff from Mississippi who undergoes a serious transformation on how he views race. Yeah. And it's important and it works and it's good. And Defoe goes not to the lengths of Mr. Anderson, but Mr. Ward goes through a change too. And if you want to make a movie, go off and make your movie about the civil rights movement. That's fine. You know, some of those movies have been made and I totally encourage it, mm -hmm. but this is a movie that's an important movie. And uh, it's a terrific movie. I mean, scene after scene after scene is incredibly compelling and uh the characters are great and yes do i think that 
they have they have a case when it comes down to you know some of the black characters and the way they're portrayed yes but i do think that there are some heroic moments that we've alluded to today there are some heroic black moments and there are some heroic black characters in this piece and, you know the da- aaron aaron's dad where he's had enough they're not just cowards they're not just um, you know, laying down at the feet of the white man, you know, they are fighting back in all the ways that they know how. And, you know, the kid, just like you said earlier, John, the kid testifying, you know, you know, I mean, think about that brave soul. So I think a lot of those comments are unfair. I think this is a landmark piece of, of filmmaking on so many different fronts. You know, making a movie is not easy. And to have one this special where everybody comes together with the acting, the directing, the music, the, the uh, production design, the cinematography, I mean, it's all exquisite. And, um, you know, I, I, I see what some of these people are saying, but at the other, at, you know, I also disagree um, on some of the stuff and some of the stuff makes me a little bit angry because I really, really love this film but I understand that they've lived it and they have a certain opinion on the way they've lived their lives. And I respect that fact. And that's the beauty of film, ladies and gentlemen, it's subjective, right? It is what you, your, you bring your experience to any film you watch and you take from it what you take from it because of how you're built, how you're constructed, how you're emotionally built to process what you're watching. And Spike Lee and the people who felt negatively towards this film has as much validity as David does uh, about championing this film or any of us might have Steve or I might have championing this film. And I think it is a damn good film. Um, And we don't, I don't see the black and no point do I see any of the black characters as weak or cowards or cowed. I see them as trying to find a way to navigate an incredibly difficult situation absolutely everything is against them and every pillar of justice is corrupted and against them and yet they endure they are strong and they fight and you're right there are people who step forward and want to testify and want to push back and endure the physical brutalities and near lynching all of it they endure and they are there at the end singing in the church. They are, we see them walking and protesting in the movie as well. We have a scene of them walking where Defoe is walking with them. There is that, you know what I'm saying? And in the end, when you look at the real case, who solved the case? It really was the FBI who solved the case. They just, what I think they're saying is they want to see stronger black characters. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And certainly cinema through the nineties and into now, and especially now it has become very paramount to show more, to show more three dimensional black characters, more um, uh, active black characters, more aggressive black characters in justice, right? Right. More activist black characters seeking justice. That's the progression of film. So Spike Lee's complaints are as important uh, as Alan Parker's film for the end result that we have now as we walk into the 2020s, where we have what seems to be a groundswell of representation all across the board. What feels like overnight studios have finally gotten the importance of what Spike Lee and and, uh, the great uh, great credit Scott King have been saying and others have been saying for multiple decades about the entertainment industry. But this film still matters because it's a historical piece of fiction about a time that is not as far away as we would like to believe. Um, David, John, that was all great. 
great stuff. And I always go like, you know, we're going to get to our final thoughts and yeah. like, <laughs> good luck topping that. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> that's it. That's my final thought. I'm done. Um, uh, the movie was nominated for seven Oscars. The only thing it won is cinematography. Uh, as I think I said in the last time, it was it, this is one of those weird years because that's it's Rain Man. So Hoffman won for that. Gina Davis beat Francis McDormand and because of accidental uh, tourist. Ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, nope. Accidental tourist. There we go. Um, uh, and I think we are actually at final thoughts. So I don't know if you want to. Sean, <laughs> you get to rest on your laurels. Yeah, that's uh, it. That's all I have to say. David, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I do really want people to see this movie. I want people to watch the direction, watch the um, the way the director and the cinematographer work together in crafting this piece. Um, the acting is, and the casting is. I mean, if you if if you're going to give an Academy Award out for casting, you know. Somebody certainly deserves one here. There are no small parts in this movie. Um, and <clears throat> my biggest thing that I've been saying is just the music. You know, the music turns this from a drama into a thriller. And that is about the biggest compliment you can give <laughs> a guy with music in, in a case like this. I mean, this is a thriller. Mm. And the, the scenes from scene to different scene to scene, Steve, you have brought up, you have taken us through 25 to 30 great scenes. <laughs> Think about that. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't hear that in any movie, you know, I mean, this movie is just loaded and I'm just honored to be with both of you gentlemen today. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I mean, it's uh, this has been a blast. I mean, I love it. And uh, you guys do something really special here. So thank you. Thank you, David. Well, thank you. So I, I'm trying to th- figure out how to sum up my thoughts about Top this. that, Steve. Top it. <laughs> so um, no chance. No chance. I, I believe <laughs> that uh, Coretta Scott King is 100% right in asking when will Hollywood have the courage to tell these other stories. Sure. Absolutely. And although some of those stories have been told, it's not nearly enough. And the, what the problem with all of these controversies is that the absence of movies that tell the stories that need to be told is not a criticism of the movie that exists. That anyone who has tried to make a film, uh, David, you said this before, it's really hard. To make a good film is super, super hard. Every cut, every bit of casting, every costume, every place you put the camera, every piece, every music cue, all of that contributes to the whole. And the only job of the filmmaker is to make is to tell a good story. And the pressure of the how am I serving all of these different political ends, just like the pressure of how am I serving the studio or how am I serving the toy line or how am I serving, you know, this particular actor's ego, all of those are the enemy of telling the good story. And I think that Alan Parker told an excellent story. I think he told a story that forces us to talk and even the controversy of itself. And it's why I wanted to, to really not shy away from it Mm. is really almost makes the film better. If you acknowledge it, if you look at it and yep. think about it, because mm-hmm. what does this movie want us to do? It wants us to examine this moment mm-hmm. and to think about it. And I think that 
I, I think that it succeeds so well in doing that. And in particular, because there are no easy answers in this movie. Mm -hmm. no. We don't go, hey, Gene Hackman's right. We don't go Willem Dafoe's right. Yeah. You know, we, we, we go like, oh, this is hard. And you don't even at the end of the movie go, okay, cool. It's all better. Because <laughs> it certainly is not better. And I think what hit me most strongly in this is how many of those moments were terribly familiar. Mm. And so if it helps us think about anything, it shouldn't just be about the past. So that's what we think of Mississippi Bernie. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. As always, you can visit our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you do, please leave your reviews on iTunes. They're really, really important. You can also subscribe on YouTube, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on a whole bunch of other places. Uh, if you want to leave your comments on YouTube, we love getting them there. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's Cine underscore Files. On Instagram, The Cinephiles Podcast. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can buy or stream mississippi burning through amazon prime on cinephiles.net and if you want to reach me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram john how about you yeah you can always find me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and hey if you want to come over and have some more discussions about film entertainment politics or sports come on over to my youtube channel as well youtube.com slash john roca says see all the great content we got going on all the great co-hosts and great conversations we have and steve and i recently did a watch along of our of the 200th episode documentary that steve uh directed and edited about our show celebrating the 200 episodes we'd had and all the great guests have been on it uh so come over and watch that episode we watch or i watched the episode the uh, documentary for the first time and then steve comes on and we do a great q a for about an hour about everything involved with the show with the making of that documentary so please go and get go and watch that as well and go subscribe to my channel absolutely i i couldn't watch it again i've watched it enough <laughs> <laughs> i want to watch it i'm gonna watch it. <laughs> oh that'd, that'd be great well da and david speaking of great conversations this has been a fantastic mm. conversation anytime you want to come back on the cinephiles let us know what movie you want to talk about and we'll try to okay. make it happen hell yeah hey, can i give a quick plug absolutely. yeah please of course of course I recently got an Instagram account. I think I have a couple hundred followers almost, but I would love to, I would love to get a few more. Uh, David McKenna screenwriter um, is my Insta account. That's my only social media. Um, and I'm just trying to be cool with my kids and it's not going very well. <laughs> I gave up being cool when I was like 11. Was and, uh, <laughs> and also embattled, please see it. It's a film I'm very proud of. It's on, uh, Amazon, Voodoo, and Apple TV, and iTunes, I do believe. So it should be pretty easy to get. And uh, star Stephen Dorff, and Stephen is terrific in it, and uh, Darren Mann as well. And we'll put up Embattled on all our social media and everywhere we can think of to help drive people to this movie. Um, awesome. so, so, David, thank you again. Thank you, David. Thanks, Steve. It's been an incredible Thanks, conversation. John. Good and, day, everybody. Uh, you too, I, brother, I, man. And I think that's it for this week, and we will see you next time for another great film on The Cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs>